our catechism instruction this evening continues uh, from where we left off uh, last week. I just want to make that connecting point for you here this night uh, tonight. Yeah, last week's question was, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? And the answer given us was that no, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. So the keys of the kingdom, that last clause there, is what we're going to take up tonight and next week. So question 83 is, what are the keys of the kingdom? And the answer given us is the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Now, I skipped question 84 because I hope to take that up next week with you. Uh, Question 84 lines up perfectly with the series we're doing in the morning regarding the worship service. So next Lord's Day morning, we'll consider question 84 of the Catechism and speak about the sermon that we have in our worship service. So that'll be next week. So I skipped 84 and I moved directly to 85. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? The answer given us here, according to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who after repeated personal and loving admonitions refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again, as members of Christ and of his church. So we consider then this evening, dear congregation, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which is given us in our catechism as the preaching of the gospel. I hope to consider that next week. And this uh, Sunday, or this uh, evening, Christian discipline, church discipline. Now, It's a great blessing, congregation, that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has given us such explicit directions here on how to resolve these conflicts in the church and how to exercise Christian discipline. We're very thankful for Matthew 18 because it lays out for us a step-by-step process that the church can follow. Now, we see in Matthew 18 two uh, basically, two uh, steps of procedure, two, uh, two parts of one process. The first is called fraternal correction. That's, again, the, the church's term, not the biblical term. Fraternal or brotherly correction. So that's point one this evening. And then point two is ecclesiastical censure. So two parts of one process, fraternal correction and Ecclesiastical censure. So looking now at fraternal correction 
in the first place, I want to make two notes here. First of all, when you look at the Catechism, you'll note that the process of discipline is only exercised on Christians who are within the church. Notice the Catechism says, according to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, if such, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives and so on and so forth. So this process of discipline, as we stated last week, is for those who are within the church of Christ. We don't exercise discipline on people who are outside the church. God will judge them. You'll remember that from last Sunday evening. The second thing to note is that the kinds of sin that Christian discipline is exercised towards. And you'll notice here that the character of the sin is a public sin, a visible public sin. Our catechism says that those who profess unchristian teachings, right, that's definitely a public thing. Profess means to do it in a public way. They profess unchristian teachings and they live unchristian lives. In other words, that it's visibly obvious to the church and to the leadership of the church that they are living in some obvious public kind of sin. So those two notes, first of all. But fraternal correction then, fraternal or brotherly correction. The first step given us in the catechism here is, in that sentence there, after repeated personal and loving admonitions. Repeated personal and loving admonitions. Now, if we, if we lay uh, next to this the text from Matthew 18, you'll notice that Jesus teaches his disciples that the steps of fraternal correction are all to be kept private. These are uh, uh, situations. Well, let me, let me lay out the situation. So in Matthew 18, the situation is your brother sins. And again, your brother in the Bible is, always a, uh, is usually a, a technical term for a fellow Christian church member. That's what the word brother means. So if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So the situation here is that you have seen a fellow brother or sister that has committed such a sin, and now you feel under obligation to go and to bring him to repentance for that sin. Now, the first step then is a private meeting between you and this brother. And again, I'm just going to say brother tonight, but you know that includes brother and or a sister. Now, my friends, this then is step one. And already we can see God's mercy towards his people. Because by giving us this as the first step, you see how God protects the man or the woman who sinned from public exposure to public shame. Now, my friends, if that is God's purpose in, in keeping these two meetings, these first two steps of fraternal correction private, then that also should be our aim. And so let me be very clear tonight that if your brother or your sister sins against you and you spread it abroad and you call so-and-so and you talk to so-and-so, let's just call that right what it is, that is sin. Your brother may have sinned, but you've piled your sin on top of it. Because instead of following the steps that Jesus lays out here, 
you communicated it to other people. God intends for it to be kept private, to give this brother a chance to repent, and to save him from public exposure and public shame. So then when you do that, you are going counter to what God himself, his purpose is in keeping it private. Is that clear? I hope we understand that, my friends. That by, and of course we have a, a name for that, that's just simple gossip, isn't it? And slander sometimes. When we share things about other people and how they are in sin, instead of following the method that Jesus himself gives us here. Now I want to make one qualification there. Sometimes when there's a situation like this, uh, you may feel the need to talk to one person who you especially respect as a godly, wise person to get advice on how to proceed. Now that certainly is a God-honoring thing to do. And that's not what I'm talking about here in terms of sinful gossip. Young people, especially, if you have an issue at school or at work, you should lay that before your parents. Lay it before your mother. Lay it before your father. Seek their advice. That's a wise thing to do. But not to chitter-chatter with each person in your circle of friends. That is clearly sinful and violates the very purpose of God, that fraternal correction is meant to be a private thing between you and the person. So I make one qualification, right, that to seek the advice of a wise person, because these cases are never easy, are they? They're never just clear-cut. So that's a good thing to do, especially when you're young and inexperienced in the ways of the kingdom of God. All right, then step two is to take with you one or two witnesses. And here again, what a blessing it is that Jesus very explicitly tells us why this is. Take one or two witnesses with you so that, in other words, here's the purpose, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That means, my friends, that should this process of fraternal correction transition to ecclesiastical censure, then those witness, witnesses can establish every fact, every conversation, every word that was spoken. And it's not just you against him. Your word against his word. But now there are witnesses in place to establish every word. But still, even with this step two, my friends, I want to point out very clearly, notice that it says in verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is, the, this is the grand goal in this whole process, to win your brother back, to be reconciled to him again. You know, we don't do this in this church, but I would almost love to open up the pulpit for people to come forward and tell us your stories about, especially the, the older ones amongst us, about how you, you engaged in this process. And somewhere, either in step one or maybe step two of fraternal correction, you won your brother back. That is such a joyful experience, my friend. In fact, it ends up humbling you, right? Because you see all your own sin and all, the, all your unworthiness. And here you were calling him to repentance, but you got a log in your own eye. We all feel that way, don't we? When this process happens and when it's successful. What a blessing that is when you win your brother. But my friends, that's the goal of this process. To win your brother in a private way so that he's not exposed to public shame and ridicule, but he's won over again. 
and you have your brother, and there's a reconciliation, there's a friendship again. Perhaps he was brought to repentance, whatever it may be. What a blessing that is. But again, step two involves witnesses that every word may be established. Well, uh, I, gave you, I gave you this purpose. I guess I'm not following my outline too well here, am I? So the step one, uh, the, the purpose of step one is to keep it private. That's, the, uh, that's why I put that on there. The purpose of step one is to, to prevent the brother or sister from being exposed to public shame. The purpose of step two, that every word might be established. Now, I put in here uh, the uh, articles from our church order just to show you how our church order follows almost exactly what uh, we're taught here in Matthew 18. Addressing private sins in Article 52, he says in, uh, it says, in case anyone errs in doctrine or offends in conduct, as long as the sin is of a private character and does not give public offense, the rule clearly prescribed by Christ in Matthew 18 shall be followed. In Article 53, secret sins from which the sinner repents after being admonished by one person in private or in the presence of two or three witnesses shall not be made known to the consistory. Again, if you're a note-taking person, would you circle not? We don't need to know about it. Praise God, my friends, if the steps of fraternal correction were successful. Give praise to God for that. Don't, you, we don't need to know about it. God's purpose is, is, is realized and the person is, is saved and is not uh, exposed to the public shame that comes when it becomes public. Again, my friends, fraternal, brotherly correction. What a happy day it is when, you, uh, when fraternal correction works in this way. Alas, that it's not always the case. In fact, in my experience, it's not even usually the case. Sometimes, my friends, you can go to a person and, and even confess your own fault. And you can ask for forgiveness. And they won't extend forgiveness to you. Uh, you, you can't, you're not responsible for what they do, right? You can't, you can't get in that person's mind and change their heart, right? And so sometimes they just, they don't forgive you and then you have to leave there knowing that you did your due diligence and, and you have to leave that with God. Okay, but now the situation again is different because in Matthew 18, remember, uh, you are confronting somebody about sin in their life or error in their life. You're not confessing your own fault, right? You're, you're confronting sin in their life. Again, usually it doesn't work the way we would hope. Well, then it comes to the steps of ecclesiastical censure. I want to bring you back to the catechism again because it says, who after repeated personal and loving admonitions refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways and who after being reported to the church, that is to those ordained by the church for that purpose. So that is now the step then when fraternal correction becomes ecclesiastical censure. Fraternal correction is the responsibility that we as individual Christians have to each other. It's just an exercise of Christian love to each other. Ecclesiastical censure is the responsibility of the church leadership to correct individual members of the congregation. Now, my friends, at this point, if you would take your forms and prayers book, that's the thin little red book you have 
I think it's in the pew in front of you. And we can, we can read uh, what we have on page 59 of this book. Our Forms and Prayers book actually gives us two forms for excommunication. I'm going to pass by the first one and come to the second one because this is the one that lays out each of these different steps. Now, we don't have to read this whole thing, although, really, it would be a blessing for you to read it. it is, it's very interesting and very, uh, very beautiful in one sense. The first announcement, notice that the first announcement that is given here is the announcement is made that a member of the church is under ecclesiastical censure. Sometimes this is called silent censure because the name of the person is not mentioned. So the offense is listed. The leadership of the church will tell you that there is a member of the church who has sinned against such and such a commandment. And you can see that. that in, uh, It's just used as pronouns under that first amendment, right? In the second paragraph, through his or her unrepentance, our brother, sister, third paragraph continues the same practice. But then the second announcement is, 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 is uh, again, if after many uh, repeated admonitions, again, what the catechism says, loving admonitions, uh, there is no success, they move to the second announcement. Now here, just note what's in parenthesis there, that the leadership of the church in our denomination is required first to receive the advice of classes. And so I've, I've, I've heard this now several times, right, where uh, elders will come and present the case to the classes and ask for the classes green light to proceed with the second announcement. And I want to stop there, my friends, because that too is such an important thing. Now you know that um, I, I hadn't really gone to so many classes meetings at all, frankly, before I became a pastor of this church. And there's one thing that struck me about these meetings, that when elders bring these cases before the classes, this is an important step. Because the members of the classes and those ministers, they're sharp. They listen very carefully. And they listen and make sure that all the proper steps have been taken place. I have heard ministers say in certain cases when they come forward, they say, you know, don't you think that's a little quick? In other words, maybe you should give that more time. Or they will say, have you considered this? Or have you thought about this? And again, I, I, I feel... Uh, and, I, and I treasure the fact that the classist really is listening carefully to protect the person who is under the discipline. If I, if I had to say it this way, it almost seems as if the ministers of the classist are almost like an, a, a defense attorney for the man and sister who's under discipline. And so this classist thing, you know, people, people so, much, so many times they, 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 speak, they speak poorly about church order and classes meetings. You know, what is that all about? Is that really necessary? It, 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 I, I've seen it with my own ears, my friends. And, and the classes does their best to make sure that justice and fairness is observed in every step of this process and that the man or woman under discipline is given every fair opportunity both to defend themselves and even, even to bring other people to make their defense if they're not you know, gifted that way Again, this advice of classes is not just a, a, a quick step that you run through. If you bring a, a class, if you bring requests to proceed to the second step of ecclesiastical censure, you can expect 
the elders and the pastors of, the congr- of, the, of different churches to really make you defend your case. And that's for the protection of the person who is being disciplined. At any rate, the second announcement then is the name. And you'll notice there in the second paragraph, with a heavy heart, we report the suspension of, and then a blank is given there, so that the man's name is, is uh, given, or the woman's name is given. Finally, in the third announcement, in the third announcement, the date is given. If you look on page 60, you'll notice it says third announcement. And in the middle, at the very bottom of that page, on the left-hand column, you'll notice if he, she does not show evidence of repentance by, and then there's a blank given, and then a date is provided by the leadership of the church. And yes, that is an ultimatum. If there is not repentance by that time, then the fourth step of excommunication is undertaken. So that is how our church does church discipline. And I spend as much time as I am on this congregation because I think it's, it's important that the congregation see that this process is a good one. It is based on Scripture, clearly based on Scripture, and it is given there for the protection of the person who is under the discipline. The third point that I have here is some comments about this text itself. I've already spoken about the goal. I've spoken about the witnesses. Let me say something about a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now those words can often be misunderstood as though we should shun the person and hate them. Now it does mean, in a sense, some shunning. It does mean that we are not to bring that person into our familiar circle of friends, into our intimate circle of friends. It does not mean, my friends, that we should hate. And again, you'll remember the sermon from last week where Paul says, I've delivered this man over to Satan so that his soul might be saved. Again, the purpose is always to restore the offending member and to bring him back. And so a Gentile and a tax collector means that the person is to be cut off from our close circle of friends in order that he might be an object of prayer and evangelism, that we might win him back and restore him as a brother to the church again. Now, binding and loosing. You'll notice it says there in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now here, dear congregation, uh, is such a solemn verse. This is so serious. Binding someone on earth means that he's being turned over to Satan. He's being bound up in prison. So interesting what we heard from Pastor Anima in our prayer request for missionaries today. Because that's exactly what is being talked here. That he's being bound in prison. He's being handed over to Satan and bound up in Satan's, in Satan's bondage so that he would, under that hardship, come to Christ again. Loosed on earth means that, praise God, he is loosed from Satan's bondage and received back into the church. So binding is, is turning him over to Satan. 
loosing him as bringing him back, bringing him and restoring him back into the church. But my friends, the really serious thing here is, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And it's important that you notice the tense of that verb. This is called a perfect tense in in Greek and in English. Shall have been bound. That means when church discipline is carried out according to the principles of God's word, that binding takes place not just on earth, but that in heaven itself, that man, that woman, has no hope of salvation while they are in that condition. Of course, they can repent and be received and be loosed from Satan's bondage. But the seriousness of what happens in excommunication, my friends, is that that person is cut off from the church of Christ. He's cut off from the kingdom of God. And he's cut off from any assurance and hope of heaven. It is a serious thing, my dear friends. I hope you you sense something of the serious character of church discipline. That what takes place on earth here takes place in heaven. It's seconded, if I could say, in heaven. Now, praise God that when we loose someone on earth, that also takes place in heaven. And God spreads his arms of grace and mercy around that person and restores them. Remember the man that committed sin in the Corinthian church from last week, how we saw evidence that he had come to repentance. And Paul says, now don't grieve him overmuch, lest he be overwhelmed with sorrow. What a precious text that is. So that also then is on earth and in heaven. Well, let me consider then these, these four points of application. Now, my friends, in the first place, I want to say something that really doesn't apply at all to the text that we had tonight. You know that the situation in Matthew 18 is that we have witnessed the sin of someone else and we have confronted that person about their sin with the purpose of bringing them to repentance. Now, my friends, what an what a even better situation, what an even better solution to the issue of resolving conflict in the body of Christ when the person who caused the offense seeks forgiveness. That's why my first application tonight is seek forgiveness. Now, that's not taught us in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is about something else. But I can't help but think, my friends, that if we're going to do what Christ told us to do, that we are to live and to have a life in our church so that the people around us would see it and say, behold, how they love one another then what a, what a much more lovely thing it is to seek out forgiveness. Not to wait for somebody to come to us, but to seek it out. Now, if I can be a little vulnerable this evening, my friends, in the, in the consistory and in the council meetings that we have here in this church, you know that sometimes uh, uh, we get... Uh, we, we feel quite strongly about the things that are being discussed. And I, I smile a little bit because I think anybody who served on the consistory and council knows that issues come up that are very serious issues. And sometimes there's serious disagreement. And sometimes words are said. Later when you get home, you think to yourself, I shouldn't have said that. Or perhaps you said the right thing, but you said it with an unnecessary harshness, unnecessary heat, in the moment. And my friends, I can say that uh, what a blessing it is 
that in our consistory, our council here, you sometimes get that call. That person says, brother, I shouldn't have spoke that way to you. I'll even admit uh, this evening that I've had to make that call. If you can believe that, I've had to make that call myself and say, you know, I I shouldn't have spoken that way. And that happens. And what a blessed picture that is, my friends, of the love that is supposed to exist. Of course, our, you know, we're people, right? And, and we, we get excited about things, right? And, we, and in the spur of the moment, we say things that we regret later. Make it right. Make it right. Don't go to bed that night before you get on the phone and say, I didn't need to say that. Or, you know, I, I do believe what I said, but I shouldn't have said it like that. Or whatever, whatever it is that you need to apologize for. That's such a blessed and happy thing. And it brings so much humility and grace and and good feelings amongst the body of Christ. Let that be our spirit. And I put that text in there, Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you. And again, underline those words. So far as it depends on you. You can't change what other people think. Again, some people might choose not to forgive you. Or perhaps you might go to correct them about something and they won't agree with you. But so far as it depends on you, Pick up that phone or call that person. Tell them you want to have lunch. Let that be the spirit that reigns in this church. We can't have this spirit of of, of calling other people. Can you believe what this guy just said to me? My friends, again, I say it very clearly. The Bible says it very clearly. That is sinful. That is sinful gossip. That is a cancer in the body of Christ. Now, if something is of a public character, if the sin was of a public character already, then, of course, the steps of fraternal correction are already bypassed, right? Again, the sin is not of a private nature. It's already public. Well, then, different procedure follows. But let's do that, then. Let's let's resolve that if you are the person who gave the offense, seek forgiveness. The second application, then, more in line with Matthew 18, my friends, is to be able to receive correction. As we read from the psalm, right, to let the righteous smite me, let them rebuke me, it'll be an excellent oil, a soothing oil for me. Don't get angry when people come to confront you about something you might have missaid or something, some action of yours that they don't think was just. Don't get angry about that. Don't be so quickly offended about that. Even if you think they're wrong, I still don't see a call, my friends, for any of us to get angry about that. In fact, the method, the procedure that Jesus gives us here is so beautifully calculated to keep the peace amongst the brothers. Let's just suppose that somebody does confront you about something, and you, before God and your own conscience, you think to yourself, you know, I, I, I don't think I did wrong. I, I don't think that what I said was incorrect or I don't think I said it, you know, in an unloving or harsh way, right? And so, yeah, you, you're not going to repent then, of course, and there's not going to be that reconciliation. But the process, my friends, is a beautiful one because that process will now go to the leadership of the church. And the leadership of the church will hear the case. And hopefully, again, if you're in the right place, they will bring a resolution to it. It might not be agreeable to to one side or to both sides, but at any rate, a resolution will be had. But never is there a call for anger 
and the, and the, and the tearing apart of the body of Christ and the, and the devouring one another. Remember what Paul says to the Galatians, if ye bite and devour one another. So again, if we, if we can man up, and I say this to the women as well, man up, right? Have that kind of courage to not be offended. Recognize that the person is simply following the procedure that Jesus laid out for them. Rightly or wrongly, they're trying to follow that procedure. Let's give them credit at least for that. I detest the kind of quarrelings that sometimes takes place in churches. My friends, and I'm sure you detest it as well, letters get written back and forth. Sometimes it even gets to the point where they lawyer up. Come on. That's unworthy of the, of the body of Christ, my friends. That's, 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 uh, that's such a bad testimony to the world. Satan rejoices. Satan rejoices when he sees believers going at it like that. There's a better way. There's a better way. My third application is to pick your battles. To pick your battles. There's so much wisdom need, needed in these situations. And I do think this is important to mention as well. The first thing to consider in this, whatever the situation might be, my friends, and I say this in the first place, is someone in grave danger. If there's a situation happening that involves someone in danger, this is not the time now for fraternal correction. If it's serious enough, you may have to call the police. But this is not now the time to think, well, I should plan to meet with this man, especially in these cases of abuse, right? Where we live in a sick society, where there can be cases of abuse, spousal abuse, child abuse, right? In such cases, you need to act immediately, right? To, to bring in the proper resolution uh, to, to, a, to a case where there's real danger involved. We need to act quickly. That's not the kind of sin that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 18. So I want to say that in the first place. Uh, in the second place, I want to consider insults that are done to you personally. We, 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 we can be insulted by things that happen in church. But I ask you, my friends, when you think about the love that God commands us to have for each other, when we think about the principles of Matthew 18, and you think about somebody, something that someone said against you, is it possible, my friends, that you could bury that insult and, and just not even just dismiss it? Again, sometimes the principles of Matthew 18 don't have to be followed, especially in the cases of these personal things. When somebody said something to you, the Proverbs 10 verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers up but love covers all transgressions. Now again, all doesn't mean all, absolutely, right? It means that love covers over these insults that are done to us personally. And it's a wonderful thing when someone in the church says, you know, I probably have a right to pursue this, but I'm just going to bury it. I'm just going to be done with it and move on for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. Again, that is a mature God-honoring Christian way to act. Third, was the insult or was the offense done to someone else? And here, my friends, the question is, is this your fight? 
I don't mean that like fight, fight, right? But I mean, I'm saying, is this your battle? Is this your, is this something you need to take up? Is there something, is this something that someone else will, will take up? Or maybe already has taken up? And you don't have to get involved. Again, it's a kind of third party encounter. Again, these situations are so, they're, they're never clear cut, they're never easy, are they? But that's sometimes a question. You know, there, there are people who have this impression that somewhere there's someone who's done something wrong and I need to find him and I need to correct him. But that's not the case. That's not the case, right? We, we don't need, like, like uh, guard dogs in the church, right, who are sniffing for every little possible thing that, that could have gone wrong and, and then they're going to, you know, they're going to follow all these steps carefully. Well, I'm glad you want to follow the steps carefully, but again, I think it's sometimes worthy to consider, is this my fight? Is this something I should take up? Will greater good come of this for me taking up this matter? So again, something to consider. Don't forget that Jesus said, right, at one point, that you could shake off the dust from your feet and move on. Again, sometimes that's what you have to do. Again, there's undoubtedly hundreds of different things that you could bring to bear on this whole situation of resolving conflict in the church. But I move, my friends, to one consideration that would make most of this entirely unnecessary. How can we as a church get this attitude, my friends, where insofar as it depends on us, me, you, be at peace with all men? And that's why I said in application four, in every case, my friends, come with me to the cross of Christ. So much conflict in the church would end the minute we take our place with the publican at the cross of Christ and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Do you feel that tonight? I really don't feel like I need to say so much on that. If that was our place, if more often we were at the base of the cross in sight of our bleeding Savior, thinking about what Paul said, he became a curse for us. You know what that means, my friends? That means that temporarily, Jesus Christ was excommunicated from the presence of his Father. You know what that means? He was placed under ecclesiastical censure. He received the blows of the Father's discipline for your sin. I can't help but think, my friends, that if we would just be in this place more often, seeing the bleeding wounds of our Savior, bleeding for us, so much of this conflict would resolve itself. It would hardly become a matter for discussion. I can't believe, my friends, that after the day of Pentecost, when the believers were fresh in their understanding of the forgiveness of their sins, that they had a lot of issue with conflict resolution. I doubt it. I mean, I'm sure that it came because they're people and they're sinners. But my friends, when we take our place at the cross of Christ, when we see the innocent Jesus being struck by the Father for our sins, all of a sudden at the 
the, the issues, the, the insults, the offenses that other people have done pale into insignificance because I see that my sin drove the nails into my Savior's hands. My sins drew that blood out of his body. I pray, my friends, that for you and for me, that we would take our place there whenever we have issues like this to think about. We sing in the hymn, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. I live. May that be in our eye as we think about church discipline and fraternal correction. Let us pray. Lord, I do pray that as we live our life together as a church, that we would always be ready to begin every case of fraternal correction and ecclesiastical censure at the foot of the cross of Christ. That we would look at our bleeding Savior under discipline for our sin, beaten by the Father, smitten by Him, afflicted for our iniquities, for our guilt. Lord, help us to see this clearly before we take up the case against someone else. Lord, please bless us this evening as we reflect upon these things. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless our congregation with a measure of unity and love and harmony together so that we might truly be a light on a hill, that we might be salt in the earth, and that also in this dark place, Lord, in the city of Kalamazoo, we might shine brightly as a better way to live. The service of Christ is the best and the happiest service. Oh, that other people would see it here and that they too would desire to come and join themselves to your people. Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's sing now to God's praise, number 302. 302 in the blue hymnal. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing unto our God. Tis right and pleasant for his saints to tell his praise abroad. The Lord our God builds up his church. He seeks her wandering sons. He binds their wounds and gently heals the broken-hearted ones. We'll sing the three verses of 302.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.